The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Let's think about this idea of meeting Jesus. (laughs) Meeting Jesus. Have you ever had this thought about how wonderful it would be? to actually have this physical, here-on-earth encounter with Jesus Christ, if that was available to you. Now, you know, I know you've heard the stories, but I'm not talking about, you know, maybe having the chance to, you know, meet Jesus through reading the Bible. Or, you know, maybe you've had an incredible encounter sometime when you're in worship and you feel like Jesus' presence is right there with you spiritually. But I'm saying, what would it actually be like to meet him, you know, walking down the street or showing up at your workplace or sitting at your dinner table. You had the chance to sit down with him and have time with him and have a conversation with him. What would you learn there that you couldn't learn any other way than to speak with him firsthand, to experience him firsthand? I mean, anyone can tell someone else what they've read in the Bible, what's written down there, but you would have the opportunity to do something so much better than that. You could tell people about your undeniable firsthand experience. What do you think will be the thing that just stuck out to you? After having that time with Jesus, do you had to tell people this? Would it be this unique, incomparable compassion that he had? That even though your life is full of so many things that you're not proud of, Jesus seemed to move right past all of that and let you know that he loved you. Would you be able to tell people about how he healed something in your life? even though you were embarrassed to even ask him for anything, that Jesus somehow took pleasure in hearing what your needs were because he had a plan in mind the whole time to do a small miracle in your life as a reminder of his love for you. Do you think that in just one sitting, somehow he might redefine your entire view of your place in this world? That you would walk away with a changed understanding of how you really fit with what God is doing in this world? And maybe, maybe just maybe that would be the thing that would really stick out to you. Hey, God really is doing something in this world. I mean, I knew he cared for me and everything, but it always kind of seemed like he cared from a distance and that, I don't know, someday I would finally get to see the good stuff, probably when I got to heaven. But this encounter with Jesus right here, present in today's world, yeah, maybe, maybe that would really open your eyes to that. And that would be the most exciting thing that you would talk about. Does anyone else here think that encounter would be just awesome? But what if it wasn't? What if you encountered Jesus and he surprised you, but not in a good way? I mean, you've heard about the Son of God, right? He's the Lord of love. He's the King of compassion. He's the giver of all good gifts, right? But what if you had an encounter with him, and after it was all said and done, you couldn't see any of that? I mean, instead of kindness, he greeted you with indifference. Like, eh, I don't really care that you're here. Clearly showing you that although he was going to spend time with you, don't misread his gesture and start thinking that he values you. Instead of that unique, godly compassion, what if he was cruel and harsh with you? What if you met the Lord of love, the one who the Bible says defines what love is, 
and you didn't learn anything new about love. In fact, maybe you thought you should be able to teach him a little bit about what love really looks like. What if, when it was all said and done, you encountered Jesus, but your number one impression of him was that he seemed kind of like a lazy, hypocritical person who cared a lot about himself, but not a whole lot about anybody else? I think if you did, you would have something altogether different that you would be sharing with your friends the next day. Well, which version of Jesus do you think you really would meet? Because, I mean, if it's the first one, sign me up. I'm all in. Get me there as fast as I can. But if it's the latter one, how would we dare go on from that encounter and say that Jesus is the answer for a world in great need? I mean, at first, you would say, well, this question, you know, this is just academic, right? I mean, have you ever wondered what it would be like? Have you ever gone through this scenario in your mind? But today, as we start this new teaching series for four weeks about justice, I want to share with you that there couldn't be a more relevant question to ponder. Because it's not if, but when people in this world have an encounter with Jesus, or at least those who claim that they represent him, whom will they see? You see, it's not just an exercise. It's not just a wish either. It's not just this wish that people have that they want to meet Jesus. I mean, I think there is a deep yearning in human spirit to see God here among us. I think people want something tangible. They want something they can connect with. Yes, yeah, we want a God who's all-powerful, can throw galaxies around if he wants to. But more than that, we want to see him real and present and this part of the galaxy, in the circumstances of our daily lives. We want him caring about whether or not we have food on the table and paying attention to the cries of even the single person's heart. I think we're built that way. We're built to want to see God's hand up close in real life. But I also think that God, the builder, the one who built us that way, knows that and never intended us for the normal experience of our lives to be that we would never see him. They sit there wondering time after time if God is anywhere nearby. He knows what it means to us to have a real world encounter with him. He knows that it can change everything in a circumstance that would otherwise be hopeless. And the Bible says in John 3.16, that famous verse, that he loved the world so much that he gave us his son in the flesh. Into our need, he gave deeply. He gave passionately. He gave personally. But then what happened? After Jesus had lived among us, after he'd sacrificed himself in death, conquered death, resurrected, he left earth again. Why? Why would he do that to us? I thought you said God knew that we needed a personal encounter with him. How does that fit with Jesus leaving Because Jesus told us in his own words that God has something even better planned for us and for this world. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to the book of John, chapter 14. The passage here we're going to read is set the night before Jesus was crucified. And he and his disciples were all still together in that famous upper room. They shared their meal together and Jesus has spelled it out for them. He's telling them he's going away. But they're confused. Where? How? When? And of course, what's going to happen to us? 
And so Jesus spends some considerable time talking with them about what his going away means. And so we'll just read a portion of it here today, starting at verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. There's a significant shift in Jesus' teachings to his disciples towards the end of his time on earth. Up until this time, the Bible's clear, you know, that Jesus is the Son of God, yes, but he's laid all of that aside. He's laid the privileges of being God aside so that he might live here as a real, honest-to-goodness human being. And even though you might say he was, you know, in many ways just an average, everyday human being, there is one way in which the Bible points out that was a defining factor that set Jesus' life apart from everyone else's, and that was that Everything he accomplished here on earth, he did by the power and the leading of God's very own spirit. Jesus is constantly described in the scriptures as being full of the spirit and being led by the spirit. And it was Jesus, full of and led by the spirit, who redefined love, who established a new covenant between God and humanity, and who changed this world forever in just a single, incomplete lifespan here on earth. And at the end of his time here, he begins to tell his disciples something incredible. You're going to have this spirit too, my spirit. This spirit will not just be with you, but he will be in you and he will never go away. The same spirit by which Jesus healed and taught and connected with God the Father, you you will receive that spirit. And as we look further into the matter, the Bible starts to unfold a plan that God had all along. Jesus Christ, full of and led by the Spirit, brought a new chance for the world to see, to know, and to follow God. But after he left, he gave his spirit to 120 people who are waiting and praying for God to move. And those 120 people reached another 3,000 people within days And God gave them his Holy Spirit as well. And God poured his Spirit out on people you would not have expected at the time. Not just adults, but young people. Not just men, but women as well. Not just Jews who are expecting a Messiah, but non-Jewish people who were just hearing about Jesus for the first time. And throughout the centuries, God has poured out his Spirit on people after people after people. Not just 2,000 years ago, but people who just began following Jesus yesterday. And so God revealed his plan. He would never abandon this world, but he would be more physically present in this world than ever through the billions of people who would follow him, being full of and led by his very own spirit. We know this group of people as the church with a capital C, the church universal But there's another very interesting name for this group of people in the Bible. The body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says clearly, Now you, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 
How interesting that the Bible would use this language and in several places, not just this one. That in a world that desperately needs to have a personal and real encounter with Jesus, in a time when we might constantly be wondering where we can actually see what God is up to, on a planet where literally billions of people still need to meet Jesus, God chooses to call his people this, the body of Christ, his body, the physical part of Christ, the part with the hands and the feet the part that can be seen. He calls us his body, and he gives us his spirit. And as such, wow, right? I mean, we should be floored. We should be honored. I know there's no way that I would consider myself worthy of having God literally living inside me, having God present with me 24 hours a day, actually being named as a real, living, breathing part of Christ's body. I'm not worthy of that. But along with that honor and that blessing come a very sobering truth that I want you to take home with you today. Remember it. Write it down. If you never take notes before, take notes now. Text it to yourself. Whatever you need to do, remember this. But the truth is this. Unless a miracle happens, the church is this world's only chance to know Jesus. Unless a miracle happens, the church is this world's only chance to know Jesus. Jesus desperately loves the world. He has his arms wide open for all who will follow him, but no one's going to know about it if Jesus' own body will not show them. Another way I've heard it said is that the church is God's plan A. But there is no plan B. Really? That's it? That's the best the world gets is the church? Oh, I feel sorry for the world. Did anyone else get a little bit sad when I said that? (laughs) And therein lies the problem. How can we expect to connect people to Jesus if Jesus' body doesn't even look like Jesus? In the United States today alone, you could say Christ's body is certainly challenged, if nothing else. Because in the scriptures, in the scriptures, we see a Jesus who is absolutely defined by love. He is the definition of love. He's defined by sacrifice and generosity. He taught his followers to live in committed marriages that would show his love. He taught them to be generous with their money. He taught them to love their neighbor, who might even be somebody who they normally would despise. But they were to love their neighbors just like they loved themselves. And for the Jesus of Scripture, these weren't just words. He lived them every day. But what about today? What is his body, what is his physical presence in this world look like today? In his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, author Ronald Sider summarizes the results of several different studies on what it looked like to be the body of Christ just in the United States. And this is what he says. He summarizes it this way. To say there's a crisis of disobedience in the evangelical world today is to dangerously understate the problem. Born-again Christians divorce at the same rate as anyone else. 
Self-centered materialism is seducing evangelicals and rapidly destroying our earlier, slightly more generous giving. Only 6% of born-again Christians tithe. Born-again Christians justify and engage in sexual promiscuity, both premarital sex and adultery, at astonishing rates. Racism and perhaps physical abuse of wives seem to be worse in evangelical circles than elsewhere. This is scandalous behavior for people who claim to be born again by the Holy Spirit and to enjoy the very presence of the risen Lord in their lives. <sighs> Unless a miracle happens, the church is the world's only chance to know Jesus. Wow. That statement just got a little more depressing, didn't it? You can understand why the world is confused. You can understand why people aren't just lining up to serve Jesus. You can understand why the church is losing influence and dying out in America. I think we'd see a lot of people being radically transformed if they had an actual encounter with Jesus. It would just blow their minds open. It would change their hearts. It would reboot their lives. But instead, most people have repeated encounters with his body. <laughs> us, and we just don't make Jesus look quite like the good book says he does. But unless a miracle happens, we're the only chance the world has to know. Perhaps a miracle needs to happen in us. See, we have hope. We live in a broken world, but we believe Jesus can mend it. We live in a world in need, a world of where injustice reigns, but we believe our Lord wants to provide and wants to redeem, to provide hope where there is none. We live in a world that desperately needs to know that Lord that can redeem, to know Jesus Christ, but how will they ever see him living inside us? What do we need to do? In our time remaining, I want to focus on two things that we can do. No, I want to focus on two things that we must do to represent Christ well in this world. And the first is this. Let God transform you. Let God transform you to be like Jesus. If God does not transform you and me, we have no hope of representing him in the world. You see, I, I, I think sometimes we forget that transformation, this, this complete and total change that's been in God's plan from the very beginning. It's not something somebody sneaks around the end at you. No. When we think about accepting Jesus, you know, I think there's a tendency for us that we just focus just on him. How awesome he is. How loving he is. He would do anything to reach us. How he wants to give us eternal life. Living in his presence forever and ever in a place that could only be described as heaven. And you know what? All of that is true. Jesus is that good. And then some. And it's because he's so good that he invites anyone who will respond to come to him. His arms are wide open. No matter who you are, what you've done, Jesus invites you in. It's awesome, but it's not all. You see, he's very clear about this. He has a plan to transform everyone who accepts his invitation. Look back at John again, this time chapter 3. This is a little before the famous verse. Jesus is here. He's having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. 
And he coins the famous phrase that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus asks him, what are you talking about, Jesus? He explains it this way. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirits. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirits. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Remember how we talked about God's plan? That he would give his very own spirit, not just to one person, not 12, not 120, not 3,000, but he would give his spirit to as many as would follow him? Well, Jesus is speaking of that same plan here. You've already been born in the flesh. That's what's gotten you where you are. So you shouldn't be surprised when I tell you, you need a complete rebirth where the spirit fills you, where the spirit leads you. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. The picture in the Bible is clear, not just here, all through, all through the New Testament, but it's clear. God wants us to transform completely. But the question is, will we let him transform us? Will we let him? Let me ask you to think this through, though, because what does it actually look like to have God transform you? How will it really happen? It's easy to say I'm a Christian. It's easy to say that God is working on me. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts of this thing, because I don't want us to just be people who say they're being changed. I think God wants us to be people whom the world can see are being changed. So how does God change us? I think if we'd been around a while, many of us us would get part of the answer right. Heck, even if you just listened to the first part of this message today, you might get there. You'd say, God changes us by giving us the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's a good sentence, right? It's the right answer, Holy Spirit. That's how we change to become more like Jesus. But you see, that's not much of an answer. How do we change the Holy Spirit? Can you explain that better? (laughs) Nope. The Holy Spirit. Sounds like to me you're just giving a churchy answer and you don't know what's going on or how to change. That's because it's a mystery. Holy Spirit, yeah. Okay, I know. Uh, I know. None of you would be that simple. None of you, surely, uh, you know, none of us would make our entire ability to represent Jesus Christ to a world in need based on a mysterious relationship with the Holy Spirit that we haven't really thought much about. Or would we? (laughs) Because I'll admit I have. I have. I have known that God wants to change me, to transform me, to make me daily more like him. I have known that the Holy Spirit is the one living inside me, really helping to make this happen But if you asked me how, how the Holy Spirit was doing this, one of the first thought in my mind would be, I don't really know. I don't really know. It's a mystery how God changes people. How can I explain what God alone can do? But here's the problem with that. If we just assume that God's changing us in some way that we can't know, we can't understand, and we can't see, there's a good chance he's not changing us at all. So how does the Holy Spirit change us? Well, for starters, we need to start there with saying it's not magic. 
Even though that seems to be our go-to answer, it's not just you get the Holy Spirit and I suppose you change. There's no verse in the Bible that says the longer you've had the Holy Spirit in you, the more you'll automatically become more like Jesus, even if you don't want to. It's not in there. Actually, the opposite could be true. There is a verse in the Bible that tells us we have the ability to tell the Holy Spirit no. We have the ability to, to dull the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So many of us could have the Holy Spirit and be seeing none of the transformation or power that he can bring. That's biblical. So our transformation is not magic. It's not something that will just happen. But it is something that happens when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's leading to obey God. How does the Spirit change us? To the best of my understanding, after actually looking at this, thinking about this, and letting God speak to me a little bit about this, if I had to summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. The Holy Spirit guides us and equips us to obey God's will. The Spirit guides us and equips us to obey God's will. He guides and equips so that we will obey. The mystery answer is a cop-out. But here's the deal. We can have the world's best guide, the world's greatest equipping and power, and still never change a bit. Because what God won't do is make the change for you. He will guide you in the right direction. He will remind you of who he is and everything you've been taught so far. He will make the path of obedience clear. He'll literally be present with you in the midst of change and the pain it causes. He will be your comforter in those times. He will give you the gifts and the tools to accomplish what he's asked you to do. He'll even give you the power to do things that you could never do without him. But what he won't do is he won't make the choice for you. You and I must choose to obey. And that means laying down the old life. That means literally sacrificing it, giving something old up so there is room for something new. Jesus won't do that for you and me, and the Spirit won't either. The choice is ours. The choice says, day in and day out, of whether or not to be transformed by God or to live like we don't know Him. Those choices, those are always ours. The church will only represent Jesus well if we start by allowing God to continually transform us, to change us, to make us different people than we were the day before or the previous year, year or before we came to know Christ. If you're still the same as you were before you came to know Christ, God wants to do something in you that he's not doing yet. And that will never happen if we expect something magical to just kick in. You know, any day now, hey, maybe when we're at church, something will happen. No. The Holy Spirit transforms us when we cooperate with his leading and choose to obey God. That's when the transformation will happen. I guarantee those choices will, rel- will rarely be easy and will often take us further than we were willing to go before. But that's why God gave us his Spirit, to be with us and give us the strength and the tools and the abilities, the equipping and the guidance that we need to walk that path. So that's the first one, and it's absolutely essential. But I know I speak long. Don't stop listening now. (laughs) Because the first one, honesty is appreciated. The first one is barely enough to even get us started with where God wants to take take us in this new teaching series. 
The second thing we need to do in order to represent Christ well in this world is this. Accept your mission. You are here to continue Christ's mission in the world. Accept your mission. You are here to continue Christ's mission in the world. You know, sometimes I think we have a pretty warped view of Christianity. We do. Christians, and we're the ones that are supposed to know this stuff. Even for those of us that really mean well, trying hard, or honestly, deep down, we want to please God. And that warped view goes a little something like this. God is interested in changing and transforming me, but mainly for my own good. Now, I don't think we'd ever express it like that to other people or anything, but essentially that's how things work out. Well-meaning followers of Jesus work day in and day out to try to become more like Jesus and have a better relationship between themselves and God. And some of the most wellest, meaningest learn more about God. They spend a good amount of time with God. They are even practicing some serious spiritual disciplines. You know, they, they tithe, they pray, and they fast, and they worship God regularly in all sorts of different ways. But they're still missing something that's absolutely essential because they've spent their whole time trying to become like Jesus in their character and have a great relationship with God, but they haven't taken up Jesus's mission in the world. To them, Christianity is just about becoming a better person. And without becoming a part of Jesus's mission, they're missing a huge part of why he even came to the world in the first place. But hey, don't take my word for it. Look at how Jesus viewed himself. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Jesus, see, he didn't need to become a better person. He already lived the perfect life. He didn't need to improve his relationship with God either. I mean, he just needed to continue the great relationship he already had. But look at how he sees himself. He doesn't see himself as someone who's done, someone who's complete, someone who's already, you know, kind of got it all figured out. He's a man on a mission that is not done yet, and he's got work to do. This passage of Scripture takes place after Jesus has returned from his baptism and his testing in the wilderness for 40 days. And it signals the start of his public ministry. He's about to basically go out and do the thing he's been called to do for his whole life. Look at how Jesus signals the very beginning of his ministry. Verse 16 and following, it says this, He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus had a mission that went far beyond just being sinless or even having a great relationship with the Father. He was here to be about his Father's business. And so he stands up in front of the crowd and says, God's spirit is on me and you will be able to see it. He's anointed me to go to church every Sunday and put a tip in the offering bucket. No. He's anointed me to memorize the book of Leviticus. No. 
You'll see the Spirit on me because he's anointed me to wear a cross necklace and avoid using square words. No. Jesus said you would see the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing through his life when you saw that the good news was proclaimed to the poor. When you saw freedom for prisoners, when you saw sight for the blind, when you saw that the oppressed were set free, and when you looked around, you said, this is the year of the Lord's favor. That was his mission. He was here not just to provide a way for us to get to heaven, but he was here to show the world that God loves them so much that he will even bring heaven right here to earth. And now... We are the bearers of his spirit to this planet. We, the church, are charged with continuing his mission. But can we honestly say we've taken it up? Do we represent more than just a better life for those who do find God? Do we really mean good news for the poor? Do we mean that? Good news for the oppressed, a world in great need that hasn't found God yet? Or do we just keep to ourselves because the world's problems are too big? Or are we waiting? Are we waiting to reach out because our own problems are so big? What would happen? What would happen if we rose up and took Christ's mission seriously? I mean, just imagine it. Not if just one or two people per congregation really got this. That's not what I'm talking about. What if the church as a whole, across the world, submitted to God and allowed him to transform us all individually, but that we didn't stop there and we agreed to play the role that we were reborn to play, showing the love, showing the goodness, showing the favor of God to a world in need? Can you imagine the impact that that would have on the world? What if when tragedy struck and people started asking the question that they always ask, where is God in the midst of this, that they actually started to see God's people in the midst of it, that everywhere God's people were the ones offering comfort, that they were bringing resources, that it was normal. They were sacrificing for the sake of those who were in the midst of tragedy and difficulty and hardship. What if it became known that God's people had the world's biggest hearts for abandoned children? orphans and foster kids, that none of us, you know, saw our time and our resources just meant for us, but we always knew that we could be called on at any moment to put everything to use for God's kingdom. And so we stepped up as a capital C church and said, yeah, that's important to us. We'll take care of them. Who? The children. The children who've been abandoned. All of them. Now, it would take the entire church to carry that out. But isn't that whom God wants to use? What if we even just took seriously and we all, God, we just took God's word seriously and we all trusted him with 10% of the money he's already given us? Not just a few of us. But what if, say, just every Christian in the United States tithed because they believed that this would empower the church as a whole, to make a real difference in this world. Well, somebody did a study on this, and they said if it happens, I mean, this was about a decade ago, so maybe the dollar figures are a little different, but they said that if it happened, the church in America would have access to about $143 billion per year to bring good news to the poor and set the oppressed free. 
The United Nations at the time of this study estimated that all of the world's poorest people groups could have access to food and essential services like health care and education for just only $80 billion more per year than they already had. So if the church had $143 billion per year, we could solve poverty across the planet and still have $60 billion left over for other aspects of Christ's mission. What would it look like? Folks, unless a miracle happens, the church is the world's only chance to know Jesus. But you know, it's not enough just to have a big bunch of people that call themselves the church. We need the church to be the church Jesus intended for us to be. And we will be when we let God transform us to be more and more in his likeness. And then when we accept his mission, that we're here not just to personally transform, but to continue Christ's mission to bring transformation to a world in need.